Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We are at a last gasp inflection point for the climate. Humans have so polluted the world that our entire climate is changing. We talk a lot about the human cost of this change, but what about the changes for other species? In his new book, The Tree Line, The Last Forest, and the Future of Life on Earth, Ben Rollins explores the northward migration of trees and what it means for all of us. He joins me to discuss... Boreal forest, sometimes called by the Russian word taiga, is the largest land biome in the world. The climate has shifted further north. Maybe the plants are mismatched with the climate they're adapted to. Trees are strong and beautiful living things that don't move, right? The only place where we've seen walking trees is in the incredibly long viewing or reading experience that is the Lord of the Rings. However, in real life, an individual tree can't up and travel, but forest migration is a real thing. Climate breakdown affects the sensitive parts of the planet first. Hello, my name's Ben Rawlins. I'm a writer and journalist, and for the last five years, uh, founder and director of Black Mountains College here in Wales, which is a new institution inspired by the research for my book, The Tree Line, The Last Forest and the Future of Life on Earth, during which I discovered the pace and the scale of climate change and resolved to try and educate future generations to get ready for the changes to come. And in the process, we're trying to break apart the cabal that is higher education in the UK and pioneer a new way of teaching people, which is outside on the land, trying to build an ecological civilization. And in the process, perhaps pose some harsh questions about colonialism and capitalism, for which I'm sorry, well, not sorry. Before we dive in, I want my readers to get a sense of how you write and the way you see trees. Can you read a little bit from the prologue of the book, please? Sure. So this is the beginning. It's in Lanilu in Wales, which is where I live. 
Behind my house is a very large and very old tree. I never gave it much thought. A commonplace thing, a gnarled old tree by a churchyard, a typical Welsh scene. But lately, I found myself paying more attention to trees. The tree in question is a yew, Taxus baccata. It stands on a mound several meters above the road, roots tightly gathered below the soil, bunched muscles under skin. The yew's delicate evergreen needles resemble fine hair, and they hang from great curved branches in an untidy fringe hiding a face, like a shy green man, perhaps. To approach the trunk, you must duck your head beneath the swooping fringe and part the branches like heavy sacred curtains, as if venturing behind an altar. It's a mysterious refuge from the path, only steps away, rich with the acid tang of evergreen, of life. On the opposite bank of the path is another yew, slightly smaller but with the same smooth pinkish bark, furry and sticky in places. I follow its exposed roots, bursting from the soil, snarling their way along the bank and under the path, entangling with those of its larger neighbour, forming one living structure. Upon closer inspection, the smaller tree is sporting bright red berries. She's, she is female. The larger one, without fruits, is male. They're a handsome, imposing pair, but try as I might, I can't find anyone who knows how old these ancient lovers are, nor how they got here. In a masterclass on writing you gave, you spoke about the importance of falling in love with characters as a reader. I'm going to be very focused on my own body and my own feelings. I'm going to be looking to be transported. I'm going to be looking to care, to fall in love with the characters that you present me with, to be fascinated by the places that you take me to. I want to go on a journey. In this passage and in the book, You've got trees as the characters in many cases. It's clear that you see the life in them. Can you talk a bit about the process of imbuing them with life on the page in a way that your readers can fall in love with them? Yes, I'm pleased you asked that question because I worked quite hard to bring these species to life and to think about how to do that because part of the the purpose of this book and, and this sort of experiment that I went on as a writer was exactly that, to try and make living things, non-human living things, characters that could evoke empathy and through whose eyes we could see the world, because that, of course, is what every writer tries to do, is to put you in the shoes of characters. And through that process, I came to have a much deeper appreciation for other ways of seeing and ways of knowing, indigenous ways of being in the world, and learned an awful lot from both the Celtic history of, that we have here in, in the west of the United Kingdom and indigenous peoples I met in Canada, Alaska, uh, Siberia, Norway, and, and elsewhere in the course of this research. I think the one constant in terms of methodology was getting to know the characters. And that was really just paying attention, looking again, listening, touching, 
smelling, getting really close to the bark, to the leaves, to the soil, and paying attention and saying, you know, why is this tree here? How did it get? Where is it trying to get to? How is it struggling? And what are the obstacles in its way to its reprodu- reproducing in the way that it wants to? And hopefully each chapter is a different species. And I'm trying to show how global warming looks from the perspective of a tree. Talk to us about the boreal forest a bit. What is it? The boreal forest is the largest forest on the planet. It contains one third of all the trees on Earth. And it encircles the northern hemisphere like a green halo with the white polar ice cap at the top. And it's part of the the reason for my approach and looking at these individual species is also because there's not that many species in the boreal forest. The Amazon has, I think, several thousand species per square meter. The boreal forest has something like 12 because it's really cold. It's a tough neighborhood and there aren't that many species that, that can survive. The boreal forest is actually organized in terms of these contiguous ecosystems, which have evolved separately based around different species. So in Scotland, you have the Scots pine, which is the kind of keystone species. In Scandinavia, you have the birch tree. In Siberia, you have the larch. In Alaska and Canada, you largely have spruce. And then in Greenland, you have the rowan. So each of those different places, I was able to go and look at one species that was the the kind of granddaddy, if you like, or grandmother of that particular ecosystem. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. If we were to go back in time, say, I don't know, by like a century, what would that forest look like? And where would it be? It depends on the species because some species move further than others. But maybe if I could take you back 100,000 years to the end of the, the last ice age, the tree line was probably in Europe, somewhere in the middle of France. And in the United States, it was probably um, somewhere across the, the Midwest. And then it moved ever so slowly as the ice melted and it retreated back towards the North Pole. The forest followed on its heels. And as the forest colonized that scoured rock, first you had the lichen and then the moss and then grass and then other shrubs and more trees coming, essentially creating the soil, creating the crust of the earth, which is what we now survive on in terms of our agriculture and our freshwater systems and everything. So the tree line, the process of the tree line made the Northern Hemisphere habitable for us 10,000 years ago, uh, when the last ice age, those cycles of ice ages finished. 
And then 100 years ago, the tree line was perhaps a kilometer further south, but now it's accelerating towards the North Pole. So that it used to be a couple of inches every year. Now we're talking about 100 feet, 200 feet every year. The forest is jumping north towards the North Pole. Recently, we caught up with Angie Patterson. She's a plant ecophysiologist, which means she studies how trees function in a changing environment. Safety off. Though for her, studying looks a little different. Fire! Great shot, Angie. They don't call me Angie Oakley for nothing. (laughs) Angie is hunting down tree branches for a very important reason. She's studying how and why trees migrate. It turns out tree populations move. They abandon their old homes and seek out new ones. They've been doing this since at least the last ice age. And what's it doing now? How is that changing our planet? It's having huge impact because you might think more trees is good, right? We're trying to plant trees as fast as we can in, in, in most parts of the world. But in the Arctic, more trees is actually completely transforming the tundra because more trees have more snow. There's more activity with the roots in the ground. That's melting permafrost. That's releasing more greenhouse gases. You're getting increasing, you know, more and more vegetation, which is eliminating the habitat of the tundra, is squeezing the tundra between the forest and the Arctic Ocean. And it also is changing patterns of precipitation, of wind, of rain, of ocean currents. So there's 15% more freshwater going into the Arctic Ocean because of much more rain and also all the melt from the permafrost. So that's changing the content of the Arctic Ocean, the salinity, how fast the sea ice is melting. So there's this all sorts of, of climatic systems which are anchored by the forest. Let's get a better understanding of trees. Tell us what trees do for the planet. That's a really important point. So if we want to understand what we're losing as the forest changes, we need to first understand what the forest does for us and what trees do for us. And that knowledge is actually not very widespread. We've begun to lift the curtain on the forest in the last few years with the work of people like Susan Simard and the World Wide Web and Diana Beresford-Kroger in Canada, who found out how trees talk to each other through smell and hormone release, and Richard Powers and the understory sort of trying to bring trees to life. The picture that's emerging is so much more complex than uh, we've ever come to realize before. Create a climate which is good for trees. So that means they make rain um, and they do that by releasing unstable, volatile chemicals called BVOCs into the air, which bind to water vapor and make water heavier so that it can seed clouds and it can cause rain for the forest. The other thing they do is that through that process of transpiration, of of breathing, as they do every night and every day, up into the atmosphere. That creates a pressure deficit, which then sucks in from areas where there are no trees. So a forest on the ocean, like the Amazon, is continually sucking in air from the sea and creating what's called a flying river, where the moisture is raining on the forest, it's being transpired, and then it's being transported again inland. So a forest can actually transport enormous amounts of water inland, which is why if you cut down a forest on the ocean, often you get a drought further inland. 
they're also that process is also causing the wind, not to mention the fact that all of the soil which we're currently farming and depleting through industrial agriculture was created by the process of the tree line and forestation moving over land because trees rain down leaves every year. And a single tree can create five tons of leaf litter, which is compost, which creates the soil. So they're responsible for so much about the sort of parameters of life in the Northern Hemisphere. So now that they are being heat stressed, burning and so on, though it's not just the trees we're losing and the carbon that they're sequestering. It's all these other functions as well. And what do we lose when the forest moves north? So... It's not so much losing, but it's disrupting. You see changes to rainfall patterns, which we're already seeing in North America, in, in, in Europe as well. You see changes to uh, wind. According to the geomechanical view, moisture gets transferred inland when water vapor is carried from the ocean by winds. Because some of this water gets lost to precipitation, the deeper inland this air gets, the less moist it becomes. Therefore, deeper inland means less rainfall. If this view is true, we should expect to only see forests near the coasts and drier, more arid areas the farther inland we go. But this is not what we find. Where there are still natural forests, precipitation does not decrease with distance from the ocean. In fact, it often increases, the greatest amount of rainfall being in the deepest parts of the forest, sometimes thousands of miles from the coast. So the jet stream, the Rosby waves in the upper atmosphere have a relationship to the forest because the forest is breathing. So if you can imagine, those three trillion trees, or however many they are in the boreal forest, are breathing all the time. And that is an immense kind of exchange of gases, which is affecting the atmosphere. So it's the circulation, it's the discharge of fresh water I mentioned into the oceans, which is changing circulation, and it's the habitat. So it's everything else that lives in the forest. So in Siberia, for example, I went to visit the most northerly trees on the planet, which are these cryolithic larch trees. They're frozen for half the year, 72 degrees north, very close to the North Pole. And the trees themselves are not moving because the temperature has gone up by 20 degrees, but it started at minus 60. So now it's minus 40. The trees aren't moving. But north of the trees, you have all of the creatures that live in the forest way south. So you've got species from the Black Sea, from Ukraine, up there on the Arctic Circle, because they can move. They can move faster than the trees. The trees are stuck. They're rooted to the spot. Tell uh, my listeners about the zombie forest and rewilding efforts. So rewilding, I'm not sure how current that phrase is in the United States, but in the UK, it's quite a controversial idea that we should let nature go and let the forest come back. And lots of quite wealthy people are buying up big tracts of land in Scotland and essentially just killing all the deer or fencing the deer off 
who graze the saplings and the young trees, and also turning over farmland to nature as well, and just letting nature take its course and do its thing. And it's fantastic, and it's amazing. And if you go to one of these forests that's been let go for 20 years, you can just feel the amount of biodiversity and the amount of life. It's wonderful. However, there are these big plans to bring back the forest in Scotland. Caledonia, the sort of old Roman name for Scotland, actually means wooded heights. So once upon a time, all those bare hills of Scotland, which we've become so familiar with, were once forest. So the plan is to bring them back. The problem is that climate change is probably going to catch up with those trees before they've reached maturity. So at the moment, the growing limit of Scots pine, according to the map, is somewhere near the top of the mountains in Scotland. But if the models are correct, that growing limit for Scots pine is going to be way north. And actually, the minimum habitable limit is going to be even further north than than Scotland is at the moment. So we might have this forest, which is coming back over the next 100 years. But actually, the word I use is zombie forest, because it's walking dead, that sooner or later, it's going to get overtaken. And just like the pine trees in France and Spain and Germany, which are dying and browning, that is what's going to happen in Scotland in the next 50 to 100 years, if not sooner. Since humans began cultivation, has the planet I don't know, ever truly been wild? Can we rewild the planet? There is increasing research now to show that humans and nature have always lived in this kind of dynamic relationship. There's not an inch of the Amazon rainforest that hasn't been somehow altered or tweaked by humans who are living within it, who are encouraging biodiversity for their own purposes. For example, I spent time with the Anishinaabe people in Canada And Robin Wall Kimra has written a fantastic book called Braiding Sweetgrass about the Ojibwe practices of indigenous land use. In the face of climate change, there's a lot of looking forward to new technology. But there's also so much to be gained by looking back. For tens of thousands of years, indigenous people have worked with the land to make it prosper. And they are practicing that. So they are burning the forest but in a controlled way in order to encourage biodiversity so that they can live off the land. The same thing has happened in you know, indigenous cultures all across uh, the world. So the idea of the Anthropocene is a weird one because actually the Anthropocene began probably 60,000 years ago at the same time as humans were beginning to, to have an influence. And the Anthropocene is not necessarily bad. It's just the way that we're running it now. And there were plenty of examples of indigenous peoples living in harmony with the planet, only taking enough for their own needs, enough for seven generations. I think this is a familiar concept of just taking what you need for making sure you leave enough for seven generations. So it's not that humans are ecocidal. I just think it's that capitalism is ecocidal. This kind of idea that we can keep consuming without limit, that's what's ecocidal. Humans themselves perfectly capable of doing things differently. Which leads me to my next question, which is, how did we get here? How did we get to a point on this planet where the forests are almost literally running away from where people are? That's exactly right. And we need to remember that we are creatures of the forest. We've got opposable thumbs because we evolved in the trees. And humans and trees share the same climate niche. So if the trees are racing north, we should be paying attention. 
But I think for me, on the one hand, this is scary stuff, right? This is big. What do we tell the kids? But on the other hand, this is also an opportunity and a moment for reflection and doing things differently. So for me, when you ask the question, how do we get here? The answer is huge forces of power and money and politics and history. And it's really wrong to say, to look at humans and say, oh, we're guilty. It's our fault. We should have, you know, my carbon footprint, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. No, none of these things. We don't choose how we get to work mostly. People have to drive. It's because those choices have been limited for us. They've been taken away. So we're actually all more or less victims. And if we can see ourselves as victims of a system which doesn't help anybody, really, even the rich people, then we have a basis for coming together to doing things differently. You talk about the future of the planet being indigenous. What does that mean? It means that I think our best hope for surviving climate change, and it's coming, there is nothing we can do about it. Even if we stop emissions now, we will have two degrees of warming for sure. And we may have much more than that if a whole ton of methane comes out of the permafrost and nobody knows how much methane is in there and how fast it's coming out. So we have to adapt. How do we adapt? The answer is not more technology. It's less consumption. Our economy depends on the ecology of the planet. So we have to rely on that ecology to give us food and water, first and foremost. And if we want to be part of the community of species which co-evolves to survive these big changes which are unfolding, then we have to regain our place in nature. And the way to do that is to follow the lessons of the people who've been doing it for 10,000 years, who are still doing it, the people like the Anishinaabe, the Afghanistan in Siberia, countless indigenous peoples around the world, who know the name of every plant. They know where things grow. They know what goes with what. That knowledge is the most important strategic knowledge that we need to survive and get enough food, water, and shelter in the next 50, you know, 100 years, perhaps sooner than that. But we have to start learning that stuff again and having that sacred relationship with nature because otherwise... There's no amount of money and steel that's going to save you from warming temperatures if you don't know how the soil works. I mean, is it too late? Can we change the mind of the forest and convince it to start coming back south? The forest is not coming south. The question is, is there a place for us in it further north? And that really depends on our own willingness, I would say. The big questions are, can we organize ourselves equitably so that we can all find enough resources amongst the depleted ecosystems that exist and share them equitably. Now, you might look at the recent history of the human race and say the chances of that are pretty slim. But on the other hand, humans are capable of extraordinary things. I worked for 10 years in Africa reporting on war and the refugee camps. And in a crisis, the sort of habits and constraints are stripped away and humans can completely surprise you. I don't know about the human race in its entirety, but I think it's definitely possible for some of us, and I'm working to educate new leaders in that respect, to forge a new way and to start thinking differently. What is the most important takeaway that you want readers to have from the tree line? I'd like a few things. I'd like them to appreciate the role that the forest plays at the moment. 
of how these earth systems function, because that was a, a knowledge that I never grew up with and I think is important. I hope that they come away with a, an appreciation of the gravity of what's happening, but also a practical hope for ways of living with that change. It doesn't mean, it, this is not the end of human life. It is the end of our civilization as we know it in the next few decades, but it's not the end of human life. And it's an opportunity for us to regroup and regain, as I say, our connection with nature and to try and treat each other better. You sound so hopeful. I wish I felt that kind of hope. Um, what gives you hope? My experience of hope is that this moment in history requires us to interrogate our definition of hope. Hope is not a prayer for the maintenance of the status quo. Hope is the possibility of endurance and continuity and meaning in life. And that is a lesson I learned in the Dadaab refugee camp, my last book, City of Thorns, with people living in a prison camp in the desert for 25 years. They had to manufacture hope on a daily basis. They had to redefine it in the circumstances of everyday life, which was changing all the time. It's like hope in World War II was not that I'm going to get a big house and, and have a nice car. Hope in World War II was that everybody's going to be okay, that we're going to have shared outcomes and shared endeavor and common purpose. And still there is love, there is dancing, there is meaning. It's just that times are tough. So that's what I think hope, that's why I'm hopeful, because I think there is, for many people in the world, life has always been tough and death has always been close. But now that is a reality that we have to come to terms with. But we also take the lessons of people who've been in those situations of struggle, which is that hope is always there. Well, Ben Rollins, you give me hope. Thanks for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. The planet you think you live on no longer exists. More than the Amazon rainforest, the boreal is truly the lung of the world. Covering one-fifth of the globe and containing one-third of all the trees on Earth, it's been foundational to our climate for the last few million years. But now the northern forest is marching towards the North Pole, turning the white Arctic green. The trees are on the move. They shouldn't be, and this fact has enormous consequences for all life on Earth. The hardest truth about all of this, about the chaos and death and destruction to come because of our failure to address the coming climate crisis, is that we've known for a very long time that it was coming. We've known that we could prevent it, and we were too selfish. Emerson and Thoreau, Audubon and Oliver, even Dr. Seuss, wrote of the forests, of nature, of preservation, of the essential link between humans and forests, between our souls and the soul of the planet. We've lauded them as artists and thinkers, and then we've ignored them. Now the trees are moving, marching north into places they never belonged. They are taking with them so much 
of what we need to survive as cultures, as a species, as beings who coexist on this planet with so many other living things. Maybe this time we'll listen. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.